0: Welcome to another episode of the Ask a Chair podcast series with Rams. My name is Hamzai Ajaz, and today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Jay Scher from Brown University, who's the department chair there. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Definitely. So let's start at the very beginning, Dr. Schur. Can you talk to us a little more about what interested you in the field of emergency medicine when you were first making that decision?
1: Sure. I think it's probably not that different than many people and what I hear out of medical students today. I just enjoyed my time in the emergency department as I worked through medical school, I really enjoyed every rotation. And I was headed towards primary care. Uh, I was a medical student at NYU, and I had a number of mentors there who were in primary care because I did some research with them. I did a project on domestic violence screening at the community health uh, center. I did some volunteer shifts in the emergency department and then realized I really enjoyed my time there. And so I decided fourth year, I needed to sign up for an elective. And so I did my rotation only emergency medicine rotation August of my fourth year, you know, then applied basically a month and a half later, but figured that since practicing medicine was going to be the majority of what I did, I needed to enjoy it, and Perfect. so I just chose the area that I enjoyed the most.
0: Definitely understandable there, and then since then, obviously, your interest within emergency medicine has continued to evolve within the clinical aspect and the administrative aspect as well, and I understand that you had an interest in uh, quality improvement, patient safety. Mm-hmm. And then just healthcare administration over your career. So I was wondering if you talk more about how you first became interested in that niche.
1: Sure. If you had asked me when I started internship what I would be doing in ten or twenty years, I, the answer would have been I would be practicing in a community hospital. And when I wasn't on shift, I would be out doing outdoor activities, being with my kids. I did not foresee a career in academics or in administration. I had had an interest in policy from work I had done as an undergrad and so you know something that struck me profoundly when I was a medical student at NYU in New York was that in about seven blocks you had three health systems so you have the private hospital you go down a couple blocks you've got Bellevue one of the preeminent public hospitals in the country in the world and then a couple blocks down you have the VA and rotating between those it was hard not to notice that the care the types of patients in the different systems was different. And there were positives and negatives about all three systems. And so it got me very interested in the impact of our health policies on the delivery of care and of patients. And I got involved with advocacy for increasing health insurance. This was before Obamacare. It was before Massachusetts had done the precursor of that, Romney Care. And I was very active with an organization called Physicians for a National Health Program that was back in medical school. So I went to residency, and I did my residency at the Brown Program in Rhode Island. And at that point, the big discussion in healthcare policy around access was states who were thinking about expanding Medicaid. And as a resident, uh, I felt very strongly about that. We had indigent and uninsured patients in the emergency department. And so being a small state, I was able to get quite active in advocacy around Medicaid expansion, worked with a community-based organization, and got to Testify in front of the legislature and serve on a state commission. And that definitely planted the bug for me in sort of health policy. And at the end of residency, my plan, sort of going into fourth year, was that I was going to take a part time job in Rhode Island, get an MPH, and run for local political office. And it didn't work out for a number of reasons. And instead, I did the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, which is now called the Clinical Scholars Program. And that's a two year fellowship in research, leadership, policy. And I did that at Yale. And I went there thinking I was gonna do studies about healthcare access and uninsurance. And the first project I did was a secret shopper project where we had research assistants call up mammography clinics with different names and different types of insurance to see if there was a difference in being able to book appointments depending on if you had Medicaid or Medicare. And I thought that was sort of interesting. But what I realized early on was that there were a lot of studies showing that lack of insurance led to worse patient outcomes. But in the United States, access to healthcare insurance is an ideological issue. I published that first study, but I realized I could probably spend my career publishing a whole bunch of studies like that. And it wouldn't convince certain people who think that access to health insurance is sort of something you have to work for. And there are other people who think it's a right, and that's you know an ideological difference. And what I noticed in my fellowship was right when quality measurement was starting was that improving quality, particularly at hospitals, was an opportunity to raise the quality of care for all the patients. So there had just been measures that had come out about how to rapidly get heart attack patients care, uh, something that led to the door-to-balloon time initiative, and that clearly improved the care for all of the heart attack patients in the ER. And so I spent my fellowship working on quality measurement. I played a small role in the team that developed the CHF readmission measure and then had an academic career after that at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston doing ED-based quality improvement and then research and advocacy around health policy, around quality and safety.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds a lot of the themes that I'm hearing here, you know, from your early career into even now, essentially it's been making a larger impact. Yeah, I hear that echo is very similarly, where they're not just the patients we're able to take care of directly in the emergency department, but making that larger scale impact on all the patients that you can improve the quality of care. So really applaud you for, for your career and having done that. I do want to transition a little bit now, a little bit more to your role as a department chair in the setting of you're at, you have identified yourself as a leader, you are a leader, you've held multiple leadership roles over your career, but. From a 10,000-foot approach, what makes a good leader? What are some of the attributes of a leader?
1: So I think the first thing to say is your job title doesn't make you a leader. And as I look back before becoming a chair, I've been chair for about three and a half years, I had a number of leadership roles. Some of those were formal, some were informal. I was a quality improvement director for our department. I served on and then chaired the ASAP committee on quality and patient safety. I eventually had some roles at the hospital around quality improvement and safety, and then became a vice chair of clinical affairs. I think I also had leadership experience and things that I did that were not based on those roles, work with other departments at the hospital on collaborative goals. So as I think about leadership, I think about what your big picture goals are. And as a chair, my goal is to make sure our department and the faculty members are as successful as possible at achieving the mission both for the department and for themselves individually. And I think about several different things you have to balance. One is strategic thinking and responsibility. You have to understand what the big picture is and what the decisions that are going to have to be made that are in the interest of the organization. And then work to engage people on those decisions and find ways to move forward on those. A second is representing and being responsive to the people you lead and making sure that you're hearing the things they're saying and having policies that are responsive to them. There are a number of, you know, I've thought more about leadership in this role actively than I have in other roles uh, because it requires many more of those skills because There are hats and responsibilities as a chair that may not all be aligned. I represent the health system, I represent the medical school, I represent our faculty and our group. Some of those things were completely aligned and there are others where the alignment isn't so clear and they have to work to to get those aligned.
0: I can only imagine how difficult that must be to kind of represent all three of those individual organizations or groups. Hopefully they are aligned, you know, but it definitely can be a challenge when they're not. I did appreciate the fact when you mentioned that leadership isn't necessarily just a defined title. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about those individuals that you have over your career interacted with who didn't necessarily have the title of a leader, but they still were viewed as, title, uh, as leaders in your, in your eyes or in the eyes of their peers, but what kind of qualities or attributes that those individuals have that help them identify themselves as leaders?
1: So I think as practicing clinicians, a good place to start is just in our clinical practice. You know, you will have expert clinicians and people who are informal leaders clinically because they are, everyone knows they're good clinicians, they're team players, they're the people you show up, you're excited to work alongside, they're the people who the nurses in particular complement and patients complement. And often those individuals have a significant leadership voice in a clinical practice, in a faculty department, because we all respect those skills. I think another area are people who have been able to build careers, particularly generative careers, where they have uh, helped others. So you know, people who have served as mentors, trained, recruited, People who have been successful and may not have official roles or titles in that, but when you look at their portfolio of work, they've done a lot of leadership.
0: Okay, that's very helpful to know. And touching uh, based on a little bit of, let's say, for example, a junior residents or senior residents or junior faculty, we're helping to get some sort of formal either training or formal experiences to help them become better leaders. I know some of it isn't is innate, you know, isn't an innate gift that's that some people have. But I also understand that you can build those skills, or build on, or train the leadership qualities as well. So, what kind of advice would you provide to those individuals, or what opportunities do you think exist for emergency medicine physicians to build their formal leadership experience, for example?
1: So, I'll mention two things. I, I think it's we should back away from the idea that you know this is a gift. We all have strengths and weaknesses, and. A lot of that comes from our upbringing, our prior experiences. I think the first thing is to get some honest self-assessments. And there are personality tests, sort of strengths finders, those sorts of things, to figure out what your leadership style is, because those are helpful to help you figure out the things you need to work at. I'm someone who is action-oriented and outcomes-focused. And there are all these different ways you can bucket people. My area of vulnerability is around emotions and process. And so that's an area I need to actively focus on. I need to actively listen to people, make sure they're heard, and when I work with people who have that similar approach as I do, you know, it feels natural. That doesn't mean that, you know, they are better colleagues or anything, and these are things you need to figure that out. And then the second is I think having taking some opportunities for leadership training, and there are opportunities at almost every level. And nowadays, with everything being remote, there are both live remote courses, and there are plenty of webinars and other things where you can get background on this. So I would encourage people to take take
0: some of those. That's very helpful. So thank you for sharing that advice. I also now want to talk about a little bit adjacent to leadership, the role of mentorship within academic medicine, specifically academic emergency medicine. Over your career, uh, I'm sure you've been able to serve as a mentor to multiple uh, faculty, residents as well, and then vice versa. So I want to talk about what advice would you provide to the residents, and junior faculty, who are, or in medical students as well, who are going to be the mentees. And so what makes a good mentee? Uh, so let's talk about that first.
1: It's hard not to go to... Conferences or listen to podcasts like this, and you'll hear everyone say it's really important for you to find a mentor. So I will just echo that. And understand that you are not going, most people are not going to find the one mentor early on. You need to approach a number of people, you need to talk about work, you need to do some projects with people, and then figure out something that overlaps with your interest and where the relationship is productive. A good mentoring relationship is not a friendship, there can be friendliness, but it's really mutually beneficial for both sides. As a mentor, you're looking for someone who has a focused interest, who is looking for your guidance and will follow through on guidance that you give them. It's not that they do everything you say. And as a mentee, you're looking for someone who will be interested in your topic, has the expertise or able to connect you with people who do and will be available to you. And so I think as a as a mentee outlining what you're looking for from someone, because the understanding may not be the same. Asking explicitly, sort of, how often are we going to meet? How do you want me to hold myself accountable? And coming up with actual a mentorship contract is helpful. On the mentee side, being paired for meetings, bringing materials, being honest with the mentor if you know, your directions change.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very helpful there. So now a little bit more of the flip side of that in terms of how to be a good mentor, then. So obviously having, from the mentee's perspective, having a direct ask, having guidelines, potentially in the form of a, a formal mentorship contract is beneficial to help dictate how the relationship or the mentorship is going to expand. So now on the flip side of that, how do you be a good mentor as well?
1: So I think truly understanding what the mentee wants, making sure that it's something that you are committed to doing and engaging with, similarly being clear about what your responsibilities are, you know, reading things they give you, having time for them, particularly around big projects and other things, and allowing the relationship to evolve. What's often happens, and this is sort of traditional research mentorship, someone will start in a very junior stage and be very involved in specific projects of the mentor. And then the goal is for them to move towards independence. And it's important that you do that and make sure that they have opportunities that they're going to be the first draw they're on. They are going to write the grant. And ultimately, if they work with other people, so they're truly independent.
0: Okay. That's very helpful advice. Thank you. Talking a little bit more about the roles of, as a chair, the advice you would provide to your residents now. We're going to be talking about residents or senior residents getting ready to look for their first jobs at a residency, whether that's a fellowship job or looking for an academic job or looking for a community job. You know, There's a variety of options available. So, what advice would you provide to the residents from getting ready to start that job search?
1: Yeah, so I'd back up a little bit. Then I'll talk about from an academic chair's perspective. I think you want to think about what type of job you want and what you're looking for in your career. And it's good to start thinking about that probably second year after you've gotten through the hardest parts of, of internship and exploring some things if you are going to do something besides clinical medicine, projects in Education, administration, or research, and if you're, you know, thinking of a purely clinical job, thinking about where you want to practice, and, and starting to get a connection with that area, and making sure you have the skill set for whatever practice area you're going to. As an academic chair, I'm trying to build a department that has a number of academic focuses. Uh, you know, I was lucky to inherit a department that was pretty mature and had lots of areas of strength. So when we're hiring. I'm looking for excellent clinicians who also have an area of passion and focus and in whom I see a pathway towards them having career advancement. And by that, I mean someone is very excited about education. And maybe they say, I want to be a clerkship director. And in particular, what really excites me is teaching procedures, and I have this idea about how we're going to do things differently. To me, that is the sort of focus and passion that will be helpful once they're a faculty member. You don't need to know exactly where your career is going to be in five years. I think if your pitch is, you know, I want to work clinically, do some research, and do some education, it's unlikely you're going to be successful just sort of doing all of those things without a more specific plan. And in academics nowadays, most people are more successful if they've done a fellowship in their area of interest. And it's not that you absolutely need a fellowship. There are some people who can be successful, and there are people who have had experiences before residency. But if you want to succeed in research, for example, you need a bunch of specific training. And that can either be in a fellowship, or it can be a lot of coursework and other things as a junior faculty member. And so having passion that is going to translate into wanting to do that work is important.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. That's very helpful advice. I do want to get your take on this particular incident or incidents, essentially, where, let's say you're an academic chair, you're looking to hire or build on, as you mentioned, you know, Brown has obviously a lot of already strengths that they already have within the department. I well, let's say you're at an institution where you're just getting X Y Z program off the ground. You're really building your residency department, the education department, or you're really building the ultrasound department. I imagine there's going to be some level of a faculty hiring perspective where you're hiring to build within those roles. So let's say if you are then the resident behind, whether you've already done your fellowship or you're not, you just you're hopefully looking for a direct job out of residency. So how do you go about navigating that situation where potentially the role that the chair is trying to hire isn't necessarily your area of interest or your area of strength? How do you then go to try to bridge that gap?
1: So I'll just back up and say, despite having a, a department that has a number of areas of focus, every year as we go into hiring, we say, are there any areas we need to grow or strengthen? And so you know, this last season, ultrasound was an area we were actively looking to hire in and we're excited that we've hired a couple of really great ultrasound faculty. I think you want to make sure that what the chair is looking for is aligned with your passion. You don't want to take something that really is not your interest. I mean, if you did a lot of research in medical school, so you've got a CV that says research, but through that process you decided that was not for you and you really want to be in a residency program leadership, you don't want to interview for jobs saying you're interested in research because everyone will be disappointed. And so I think your cover letter should explain your interests, mention a couple of your passions, maybe some stuff you've done and what you're hoping to pursue in your first couple of years. And a chair should be able to say, these are the opportunities generally. And I see these sorts of things opening up and hopefully there's a mutual interest. We all need excellent clinicians. So that's really important. But if a chair is looking for something with more specificity, for example, Core faculty in the residency program to do or teaching or roles in the residency program leadership, you may not have thought that was something you're interested in, but as long as it aligns with your passion, you know, then you need to think about it and then be responsive.
0: Okay. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of it stems from your honest self-assessment first, from where your strengths and weaknesses are, where your area of interest is, and then pursuing external opportunities available. So thank you so much for the advice. Dr. Shur, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing your, your experiences, your journey, as well as your advice. And for the listeners, thank you so much as well.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Okay,